From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 282 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, executive producer, and good friend, Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Michael? I am doing well. Thank you. Uh, If you notice more of a spring to our step, it's because we are not recording in the middle of the night anymore. We are now recording in the mornings. It is... It is really different. <laughs> yeah, morning for you, afternoon for me. But yeah. still, yeah, I'm usually, uh, you know, when we record, uh, typically in the past, I was, you know, in the mode where I'd usually be getting ready to start settle down for the night and go to bed. You'd just be getting off of work, uh, exhausted from that. So, yeah, right now we're, we're both still fresh. The we My are. day has not been ruined yet, and I, hopefully it won't be. <laughs> I just finished my pot of morning tea. We'll talk a little more about why we made that change um, towards the end of the show. So, you know, we were we were talking before the show about, you know, Mardi Gras coming up and all that. Now, with Tiana becoming a bigger presence at the Magic Kingdom, you know, at Disneyland, Mardi Gras has always sort of been a big, bigger deal. You know, we decorate New Orleans Square. In the past, we've had shows based around Mardi Gras, which is a shame we don't have them anymore. But are they introducing Mardi Gras a little more into the Magic Kingdom is sort of a introduction to Tiana's Bayou Adventure that's coming? No, not really. Uh, they did line up this year. Uh, you know, they we do celebrate soulfully every single year here in Walt Disney World now, and that lasts the entire month of February. So, I mean, you can kind of take it that way because, like this year, you know, the the big headlines were uh, testing out Tiana's beignets at uh, Golden Oak Outpost, uh, which right now is the number one rumor of. You know, that's what is going to be sold there once uh, Tiana's Bayou Adventure opens up and they're ready to to figure out that part of Frontierland. You know, that's a makes sense, you know, when you think about the mint julep stand at mm-hmm. it uh it Disneyland, it's kind of the same size as Golden Oak Outpost and, you know, lots of deep fryers for it. So we we're we're getting it infused that way. But beyond that, no, they don't they don't really uh they, they don't really celebrate Mardi Gras in a huge way. Like on Tuesday they'll do uh a golf cart parade at Port Orleans French Quarter and people decorate their their golf carts. Um, uh, the cast members decorate golf carts and kind of lead it through, uh, similar to how guests at Fort Wilderness would do the same thing uh, for mm-hmm. for big holidays. But yeah, I, I wish I wish we just did a little bit more for Mardi Gras because I, I love Mardi Gras and uh, you know I'm I, I would celebrate it year round if it was socially acceptable. 
along with Christmas. Yes, <laughs> the, both of those holidays. So I'd just be have king cake in one hand and uh, and then a nice Christmas beverage in the other hand. Eggnog. Uh, well, <laughs> one couldn't I think year. of one? <laughs> maybe next year when they sort of finish their plans for that area of Frontierland, they'll yeah. introduce I hope Mardi so. Gras festivities. Yeah, I, I mean, they better have a seasonal menu with the, the Tiana restaurant that will eventually open up in Magic Kingdom because mm-hmm. they have to have one. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So. Well, one of the highlights of the Adventures by Disney Backstage Magic Tour, is, I think talking about, you know, things to come in the, you know, in the parks is the visit to the Imagineering Campus in Glendale, California, with the hopes of seeing what may be coming next to a theme park or the cruise line. Often there may be models of projects or attractions there. These models are impressive and reflect the creativity and inventiveness of the Imagineers. So, Craig, you've been on Backstage Magic. Do you recall seeing any models of of things that were to come or in the planning stages? Or? Um, I, not really. So there was one time I was there and uh, we saw, we saw blueprints that were hanging up that then the next time we went past those blueprints were covered up and, and not shown. We did walk past uh, a model. I want to say it was Pandora, uh, but that was like, right after Pandora opened up, if I'm remembering correctly. So um, I I remember that, but and maybe it hadn't opened just quite yet, but because um, that, well, now I'm like trying to second guess myself because now I think that would have been on the 2015 one I did and Pandora did not open up until 20, I don't, I can't, 2017. It opened the same day that Volcano Bay did. So, yeah, actually, I think I think I got lucky with that one. But I my brain's fried. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I saw a couple when Carol and I went on Backstage Magic. We saw a uh, a statue of Minnie Mouse that was destined for the cruise lines. And I, I poked my head around a curtain that was not pulled shut. It was just partially pulled so as you walk by mm-hmm. if you you know just turned your head around a little you saw it and i said oh is that i don't know what ship what ship is she on now but it was it was a future ship yeah and that was under construction i said oh is that for and i named the ship and they said yes you're not supposed to see that because they hadn't <laughs> announced it yet and then they pulled the curtain shut but they had the whole model for new fantasy land at, at wow. magic kingdom and you remember how they rethought it and so they took out yeah. the middle section. They had just removed the middle section. And then over on the side was the new section that they had built, which was the, the, um, the, the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train. And they were getting ready to drop it in to oh, the model. Oh, wow. So That's that, cool. That was very, very impressive. Yeah, that's and it was that's huge. one you would never forget for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, it was huge. Yeah. So, and then of course we've seen you know at, at different presentations, D twenty three events, we've seen models that of attractions that the model shop has made in the past. Mm-hmm. And so back in nineteen fifty four, the model shop consisted of Fred Cherger. Um, Harriet Burns and Waithel Rogers. 
And of course, Walt Disney had a huge role and guiding hand in the creation and direction of the model shop. So to understand how these artists of Imagineering work today, we want to go back to its roots. And that is what we're doing in this episode of Connecting with Walt. So in 1954, there was no building for the model shop. Fred Jerger, um, In 1953, Walt Disney had hired him from Warner Brothers to create the draperies and backgrounds for the Project Little Man vaudeville-style stage and a miniature singing barbershop quartet. So when Fred arrived at the Walt Disney Studio, the mechanics for Project Little Man had been completed. So after a trip to Europe in 1949, Walt Disney became interested in the mechanics of some wind-up toys he had acquired. In 1951, he asked some of his machinists, Roger Brogy and Wathel Rogers, and sculptor Charles Cristadoro, to create a human figure which would imitate human movements. And this would become known as Project Little Man. A nine, and it was a nine-inch tall figure of a mechanized man imitating the dance movements of Buddy Epson. And this is considered the first test of an audio animatronic figure by the studio. Though the sculptor Charles Cristodoro carved the figure and Harper Goff's wife, Flossie, made his costume. Walt made the stage. A lot of people don't know how involved Walt was in the model shop in that those early years. The, it was his playground and yeah. because he loved miniatures and he loved mm-hmm. building things. So the articulated limbs for the figure were wired together by Wethel Rogers. The cabinet beneath the stage hid the drums, cams, and wires that made the figure move. And the studio staff referred to the cabinet as the telephone booth. And this can now be viewed in the One Man's Dream exhibit in Disney's Hollywood Studios at Walt Disney World. And, you know, it's still very, very impressive, even though you see it today. uh, Yeah, and what I love about it is that, you know, it's cool seeing the front side of it where – you know, you see the the tiny figure, and like that that's awesome. But it's it's the entire it's the entire thing. So you get a sense of how big it was just to control like one small character, and you can see in the backside to the mechanics. Like it, it's it's so impressive to see in person. So you you could spend you know easily five ten minutes just just trying to like look at how everything is connected and and all the details with it so at least i do but i'm kind of nerdy Mm -hmm. for those types of things (laughs) i think it's fascinating and it always amazes me that back in 1954 they with that technology they were able to put together this 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 mechanical man to work you know it, it was incredible yeah, and I love being able to see it in that way too because we now know uh, we know the progression of animatronics and how you know it, it went from something like that to then your giant rooms filled with readers to help control animatronics to now uh, you know animatronics being able to be like so small and self-contained that it it's cool because it does give you an idea of the history and how much things have changed with that technology. So I love that we have a place still where we can see the the beginnings of it all. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can see some of it too at the Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco if you um you know, ever have a chance to go there as well. 
Um, now, Harriet Burns called this team, this model shop team and the machinists and all that, the oddball department, because they worked on all sorts of oddball things that the animators didn't do. After Project Little Man had been completed, Fred was assigned the work on building the miniature sets, props, and some of the models for the Nautilus um, for the film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. And Walt then assigned Fred to work on models of some of the planned attractions for Disneyland. Now, earlier I said there was no building for the model shop. So where did Fred and the model shop team work? He took some space in a machinist's workroom, which was actually a converted railroad boxcar parked outside the studio main gate on Buena Vista Street. So working next to him was Harriet Burns, who was creating sets and props for the Mickey Mouse Club television show. And they would become lifelong friends and help each other with their projects. And Fred brought his own tools, including a bandsaw, table saw, and lathe to the boxcar. The first model Fred built was the highly detailed Mark Twain riverboat. And we've seen this model at various D23 events, and it's very impressive. I haven't seen it before. I would uh, love to see that, though. Yeah, it, it's incredible. Yeah, um, I bet. Due to his knowledge of architecture and model construction skills, he could work without the blueprints. For the model of King Arthur's carousel, Fred ca- hand-carved every horse. If it was constructed at Disneyland, then Fred most likely made a model of it first. Walt enjoyed visiting the boxcar to see how work was progressing. When Walt was working on his miniature granny's cabin from the film So Dear to My Heart, he would sit next to Fred. Harriet Burns recalled that Walt just enjoyed hanging out. She said he would just be one of us and kick the stuff around. And uh, it's also another uh, important one that you can see at uh, at Walt Disney Presents. One Man's Mm -hmm. Dream at Hollywood Studios. They also do have Granny's Cabin in there. And I love that from the the filmmaker's perspective of like looking at it uh, because, you know, it even showcases like little lights and, and such with it. It gives you an idea for how they could set up in stage cameras and the entire scenes and in such a small little space. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I love, 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 love that it's on display there. Yes. Uh, that's one of my favorite items on display there, just because Walt, you know, built it and then yeah. and it was also going to be he wanted to include it as part of his disney uh, disneylandia you know project where he'd have vignettes mm-hmm. that would travel the country on a train it was sort of a precursor to disneyland yeah. we'll get a little more into that in just a bit <laughs> so now besides his skills with building models that helped to define an attraction's concept Fred also instituted the standards for field art direction. He was responsible for making sure that the shows and attractions met the creative goals established by the web designers and art directors. According to Roly Crump, Fred was the master of the model shop. He said, Fred could build anything. He was probably one of the most versatile guys who worked at WED. He was just absolutely marvelous. Now, if you listen to my 60 Years of Disneyland series, you may recall the story of when Walt decided he wanted to do something with the interior of Sleeping Beauty Castle. So one day he, Fred Jerger, Ken Anderson, and Emil Curry climbed up into the unfinished interior castle. 
There they discovered it wasn't as empty as they expected and found the castle was home to dozens and dozens of feral cats. Fred was wearing khakis, which became covered with thousands of fleas from the cats. The group made their way to the castle balcony overlooking the courtyard. Fred said he took off his pants and beat them against the parapet to remove the fleas. He had to quickly make his way across the park, um, pantless, to the Disneyland wardrobe department to get some clothes before going home. One of the largest and most complex projects Fred worked on was supervising the construction of the miniatures for the Pirates of the Caribbean attraction. He also worked on the rock work, set painting, and interaction of the sets with the air conditioning vents and lighting. Fred's ability to create realistic rock work earned him the reputation as Imagineering's, quote, resident rock expert, unquote. He created the caves and rock work on Tom Sawyer Island, the caverns for the submarine voyage, and the rock cliffs and temple ruins of the Jungle Cruise and the snowy mountain crags of the Matterhorn. So very impressive. And I heard some of it, his early rock work was he really just sort of crumbled up paper and put plaster <laughs> over it. <laughs> I mean, whatever you have to do. But I <laughs> I can say I've been on tours with Imagineers like in recent years where they point out the intricacies of, of rock work and how that has become such a huge aspect of Imagineering to create the most realistic environments based mm-hmm. on that and how it would actually look in different parts of the world world so it's uh you know rock work with disney might have started off not necessarily in the best way but it's become something that i do believe they have mastered it over the years absolutely up through galaxy's edge and now being in there and seeing how complex some of that rock work is Mm -hmm. it's it's incredible oh go look at all the different parks you know the um the world of pandora at animal kingdom uh, radiator springs at Disney's California Adventure, the rock work is magnificent. You'd never believe it wasn't real. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So. After Walt's passing, Fred moved on to work in the field at Walt Disney World, creating all of the rock work for the Magic Kingdom and the Atrium Waterfall at the Polynesian Resort. Rest the in ho- peace. I know. I know. It's so, so, I know it's sad to think, you know, now we know Fred worked on that. And, yeah. and the hotel, And the hotel was completed except for the waterfall, which Fred had to complete overnight in time for the grand opening. Wow. Isn't that impressive? That's That's even sadder now that I know. We know it's gone. It was loud and it took up a lot of the lobby and yeah, it had that that water smell that, you know, some Disney fans are just obsessed with, but I oh, yeah, it, it, it was a it was a big loss. It's something I miss now that I yeah. don't think I enjoyed enough while it was around. Yeah, and I just love the sound of running water. It's just so soothing and peaceful and sets a tone. Yeah, especially you know? at that hotel. It yeah. just it it feels like it fi- it felt like it fit in and uh yeah, you know, just I I wish I would have appreciated it more when we had it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> After working on Big Thunder Mountain Railroad, he retired from WED in 1979. However, Fred was back two years later to work on Epcot Center and Tokyo Disneyland, where he did the rock work for, um, supervised the rock work for those parks. 
Fred moved to the motion picture country home in Woodlands, California in 1998 and passed away due to complications from Alzheimer's disease on August 26, 2005. You can find tributes to Fred on Main Street Windows at both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. At Disneyland, his window is above the Carnation Cafe on Center Street and reads, Decorative Fountains by Fred Jerger as a reference to the grand fountains and ponds he designed and built at his Lakeview Terrace home. I found an article of when his house went up for sale years ago, and it had photos. This was incredible. He (laughs) built the home, landscaped it, had ponds and fountains. These are fountains like you would find in Rome. I mean, they were amazing. So I, I have, I sent you the link, Craig. So we will have it in the, in um, the description of the show. Perfect. Yeah. It is amazing. Well, you can tell he took his work home with him then. <laughs> he did. That's what he did. That's what he worked on was yep. um, he liked sculpting and and he he was a confirmed bachelor. And so he uh, that's what he did. He um, he liked to paint landscapes, sculpt, and he put all his creative energy after work into his house. Very and it cool. shows there are frescoes on the ceiling. I I mean, it's amazing. (laughs) I can't wait to see it. Yeah. At the Magic Kingdom, his name can be found with other members of the model shop on a window reading Daughterland Modeling Agency, Instruction in the Arts and Crafts, What Every Young Girl Should Know. Bob Sewell, Counselor, Malcolm Cope, Jack Fergus, Fred Jerger, Mitz, Natsumi. And that is above the Uptown Jewelers. Now, Fred Jerker was named a Disney legend in 2001. In the graveyard outside of the Haunted Mansion at Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom, there is a tombstone with an inscription meant as a tribute to his rock work. Here lies good old Fred. A great big rock fell on his head. When asked, how do you do such good rock work? The soft-spoken, always modest Jerker replied, you just have to learn to think like a rock. Getting an assignment for a new model in the model shop started with an idea from Walt Disney. It would then be assigned to one of the two-dimensional artists, such as Ken Anderson, Claude Coates, or Mark Davis, amongst others, to do some conceptual artwork. From there, it would usually go to the blueprint stage and where it would be created. In most cases, by Harvey Gillette, who was in charge of the drafting department at this time. Then it would go to the model team, who may start out creating a small 1/16th of an inch or 1/32nd of an inch to the foot model. Then they would make a larger model, 1/8th or one quarter of an inch to the foot. If a larger model was needed, they would create a 1-inch to the foot model. Many times Fred Jerger's knowledge of architecture and talent for model construction enabled him to abandon the blueprints and build the model by eye. Then they would paint the model. Next, Roger Brogy would use a lens created by Don Iwerks that could be put into the model for filming. This would allow the Imagineers to film the entire ride and see exactly what the guests would see. So that sort of goes back to what you were saying about Granny Kincaid's cabin. Mm-hmm. There where you could imagine them, you know, how they would then set up 
the camera work and angles and all that using that model as prep. Yeah. It's uh, it definitely something that I, I think a lot of Disney fans out there would lose their minds if they could uh, have access to, to videos of, uh, you know, of Imagineers utilizing models and, and a camera to kind of go through like you're actually riding through the model. I, mm-hmm. I know that's something I'd want to see myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was such a smart, smart way of uh, of them trying to you know visualize what it would actually look like in the best way and how to set it up and you know it's it's another example where if you go to imagineering you see how that technology has advanced and and they figured out other ways to 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 do the same exact thing without actually being in a model like that it's still a model just not the same physicality to it. <laughs> right, right. I know that for the, we'll, we'll talk a little about the Pirates of the Caribbean model in a bit, but some people preferred the miniature version to the actual version of the attraction because of the effect of riding through, looking at it through the cameras, yeah, you know, things like that. So it was I get it. <laughs> yeah. <you know. laughs> Now, Harriet Burns was the first woman hired by Wed in a creative rather than an office role. Although she worked alongside men and handily used saws, lathes, sanders, and other equipment, she was the best-dressed person in the department, so much so that Walt often featured her on his show. And you can see her a lot in some of the episodes that have been um, captured in the Disney Treasure series, you know, um, you'll see her in there with her hair up and she usually wore a scarf around her neck and in a suit or something like that. So in 1953, Harriet Burns moved with her husband and young daughter to Los Angeles, where she took a part-time position with display industries, cooperative exchange or dice, helping design and construct props for the Colgate comedy hour. She also designed the interiors and sets for several Las Vegas hotels. Many Southern Californians will remember the whimsical Santa's Village near Lake Arrowhead. Um, Harriet helped to create that destination where you could meet Santa and Mrs. Santa in their North Pole-themed family amusement park. We had a carbon copy of it up here in Northern California in Santa Cruz Mountains. Um, that I'd visit when I was a little boy. And it was just such a delight. I'm not aware of it, but it's something I wish that I had right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they went under. They've sort of reopened it in in Southern California because some of the buildings were still there. It's been torn down in Santa Cruz, and it's a housing development. Mm -hmm. But the sign is still up. But they, they, um, but it's a, so down there, it's now more of a high adventure kind of park with, you know, um, zip lines and things like that. So I think, I don't know if Santa's hanging out there. Santa is like the original zip liner, I think. I mean, just (laughs) down chimneys. That's true. That's true. I never thought of that. So after Dice went out of business in 1955, a colleague told Harriet about a studio that was hiring for a new children's television show and that she should apply. Harriet did and was hired by the Walt Disney Studio to paint sets and props 
for the Mickey Mouse Club. She also worked with art director Bruce Bushman and concept designer Roy Williams on the modern graphic styling of the show. And it was considered very um, cutting edge, the graphics for the Mickey Mouse Club at that time. Um, Harriet shared a makeshift space in the boxcar next to Fred Jurger, as I mentioned. And there she saw all the projects that would eventually contribute to Disneyland, including Project Little Man and the Miniature Barbershop Quartet. She also saw the little vignettes that Walt Disney constructed for his Disneylandia project. Harriet soon found herself assigned to WED, working on Disneyland. She helped create models for Sleeping Beauty Castle and other opening day attractions. Her first model of the castle was around six to eight inches tall. Can't imagine it so small, you know, handmade. So then with Marvin Davis, she made several models of the castle for Walt. Herb Ryman and Ivan Earl painted them. Herb painted his model with pastels, whilst Ivan trimmed his in black, red, and gold. Walt went with Herb Ryman's palette for the castle, thinking it would look better next to the sky. I think Ivan's palette would be great if they ever did build that villain's area. Oh, A a black, red, and gold castle would look cool for that. Um I think it's we're getting closer to an actual day where that might be a reality. So hopefully someone keeps that in mind. (laughs) Maybe they're listening to this show. They better be. They'll they'll dig that out. (laughs) (laughs) One of Harriet's largest projects was Storybook Land, featuring models of houses and scenes based on Walt Disney cartoon shorts and films, including The Three Little Pigs, Mr. Toad, Cinderella, Snow White, and Alice in Wonderland. Harriet would solder the copper gutters, hammer lead for hinges, create beautifully detailed stained glass windows, and craft hundreds of small details for the cottages, houses, and outdoor settings. This was the first project she, Fred Jurger, and Waithel Rogers worked on together. And sometimes even Walt would assist when making the models when he had the time. A problem quickly arose due to the size of the Storybookland project. It was too large for the cramped boxcar. The team would have to bring the buildings outside each day to work on them, then bring them back in at night. When Walt saw this, he told Fred Jurger, I've been looking around and trying to find you more space. I don't know, Fred, the big warehouse back there, the plasterers used to cast up back there, but they stopped using it because it was too hot. If you want it, Fred, there is a lot of room. You can work back there, and I'll put big fans up. I'll have pipes put on top of the roof and fill them with water. That should cool it off. This turned out to be a corrugated metal building that couldn't be air-conditioned. The water pipes didn't work and ended up spraying water over the main entrance and created steam within the building so that none of the paint would dry. Harriet Burns said they were steamed like broccoli in there. The team asked maintenance to turn off the water pipes, but to not tell Walt since he had tried and meant well. When it came time to thatch some of the cottage roofs, it was Harriet's idea to use the straw from brooms. They ordered all kinds of brooms and cut them up and thatched the roofs. After they placed the structures in storybook land, the birds would fly down and take the thatch for their nests. 
So Harriet and her team would have to periodically rethatch the roofs. Walt Disney never hesitated to give the Imagineers the resources they needed. If they needed books, including rare books, he'd just tell them to ask the library to get them. Whatever tools they needed, Walt would make sure they had them. When Walt traveled, he would pick up items he thought the Imagineers might find interesting or for use in any future projects. Harriet developed a talent of figure finishing, which involved applying fur, feathers, skin, makeup, and any other material that would take a figure from raw construction to show quality appearance. She was featured on Walt's television show applying feathers to a bird destined for the Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room at Disneyland. Harriet worked on the attractions for the 1963-64 New York World's Fair and on the Walt Disney film Mary Poppins, for which Fred Jerker created the set miniatures. By far the largest elaborate interior miniature concept model the Wed Model Shop worked on at that time was for Pirates of the Caribbean. The model was 40 feet long and one inch scale. It was elevated on sawhorses at Walt's eye level so he could walk through the sections and make any additions or corrections before the full-size version was built. Harriet also worked on all the figure finishing for Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln, Carousel of Progress, Pirates of the Caribbean, and The Haunted Mansion, and continued to work at Wed Imagineering until her retirement in 1986. In 1992, she was honored with a window tribute on Main Street, USA, and the window reads The Artisan's Loft, Handmade Miniatures by Harriet Burns. Harriet was the first woman to receive a window tribute. The window is located uh, on the Emporium above the Carriage Place Clothing Company near the firehouse in Walt's apartment. And she was named a Disney legend in 2000. Harriet passed away on July 25, 2008, due to complications from heart surgery. Harriet Burns had always considered WED to be a temporary job. Should tell her daughter, well, next year when I quit, then we'll do so-and-so. After being in a business monopolized by men, she said, I really didn't think much about it. I mean, you know you're going to be kidded. They're going to kid you about something. And they had to be good sports facing a woman, too. So everybody had to be a good sport. You just didn't think that much about it. To learn more about Harriet Burns, listen to my conversation with her daughter, Pam Burns Claire. And I can't remember what episode that was, or if it was for the Disneyland show or or what, but it was way back. It was several years ago. Try to get that in there in the uh, description. Oh, thank you. So I appreciate that. But uh but Harriet Burns, she and she was very after she retired, she was very active in the arts community and would also appear at like Disneyana fan club events and yeah things like that so gotta love that yeah she seemed like an extremely extremely nice person and all that so and and just took everything in stride so anyway then there was waithel rogers who gave life to audio animatronic figures in the disney parks including walt disney's enchanted tiki room great moments with mr lincoln the carousel of progress and the hall of presidents said John Hench of Waythel Rogers. 
Wayther was always making everything come to life. If it was stationary and we wanted it to move, all we had to do was call Waythal, and in his quiet, calm way, he'd make it work. Waythal's talents became apparent early in life. When he was a boy, he enjoyed making one-of-a-kind toys out of household junk and little odds and ends he found. In his teens, he created mechanical toys using radio parts and other scrap material. After graduating high school, he applied for a position at the Disney Hyperion studio. Although they liked his work, it was suggested he obtain some formal art training. So Waythel enrolled in the Chouinard Art Institute to study life drawing, animation, and composition. After completing his course of study at Chouinard in 1939, he reapplied at the studio and was hired in the traffic department and was soon making $16 a week. Right away, he went out and purchased a $15 watch, reasoning that he couldn't deliver things on time if he didn't have a watch. From that day on, he was rarely without a Mickey Mouse watch. Waithel sculpted figures in his free time. When he had completed a considerable number of figures, he showed it to the head of the studio sculpture department. He was hired. Sadly, three days before he was to start, the sculpture department was shut down. Waithel decided to apply to the background department, but then they had a round of layoffs. Throughout all this, Waithel continued to sculpt and build toys, which included model railroads, and this caught the attention of Walt Disney. Walt had bought a wind-up mechanical bird in a cage, and he gave it to Waithel and asked him to have a look inside. Waithel said it was like taking apart a piece of jewelry. He laid out all the pieces and found the little bellows made of canvas, small cams, and other parts. Work on Disneyland was progressing. Fred Jerker was working on models for the park when Walt asked him to build a model of the Los Angeles Orthopedic Hospital. Fred told him he was working nights and weekends on Disneyland and asked what was the priority. Walt said, I didn't realize that. Well, I'll bring another fellow down from the animation building. I'll have Waithel Rogers come down for a couple of weeks to help. This reminds me of the Milt Call episode where Milt says, you take them for a couple of weeks and we never see them again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> Walt brought Waithel in not just to help Fred with this project, but also for his natural mechanical and electronic abilities. Walt assigned Waithel to research and development for Project Little Man. Waithel went on to create models for Disneyland during its design and development stage. His first project was to create a mock-up of the Jungle Cruise. Walt used the Main Street building models created by Waithel on his Disneyland television show. Speaking of television, Waithel also created models for Walt's show, including the models for Ward Kimball's Man in Space series. And he also worked on the models, you know, like the, remember that spaceship? There were the, uh, the um the the uh fuel um pods cut away break away from the rocket as they yeah. he had to work out all that how that how they break away how that would be filmed wow. and everything and he said Werther, um, Werner von Braun and everybody would come regularly to see him to see how were the how were the models coming along and comment on them and 
He said Werner von Braun was very easy to talk with. Harry Burns said the same thing. Very yeah. easy to talk with because they'd come around the model shop. Yeah. And all that. He also worked on the Mickey Mouse Club and Zorro. Wetham contributed to several Disney films. Besides, he did work on some of the early animated films. Um, he created miniatures and props for Darby O'Gill and the Little People and the Absent-Minded Professor. He also worked on the original jeweled storybook for the opening scene of Sleeping Beauty. And uh, that's so iconic. <laughs> mm-hmm. mean, uh, yeah, and we've seen that at a number of D23 yeah. presentations. Uh, and it's on tour, I think, with the um, Disney 100 exhibition. As, as it should be. Yeah, it's, yeah. It is one of the most beautiful items you will ever see that mm-hmm. it just does not look like it's aged today. And, you know, you also are like, well, this has clearly been around for a thousand years, right? Now uh, It's yeah. just, it's so, so, so beautiful. Yeah, they did a wonderful job restoring it, including restoring the pages inside. Um, Waitho continued to explore new technology. Working on Project Little Man led to other projects that paved the way for audio animatronics. Installing electromagnetic coils powered by a soundtrack into a small head he created allowed the early Imagineers to sync the movements of the mouth with the soundtrack. Now, this was a Confucius talking head that was part of an idea Walt had for an interactive character in a Chinese dinner theater. The animated birds in the enchanted tiki room were directly related to this interactive head. His next big project was Abraham Lincoln as part of Walt's concept for a Hall of Presidents. After it was determined that Abraham Lincoln would be featured at the 1963-64 New York World's Fair, Waithel and a team at the machine shop began working on building the figure's body. Walt made it clear that the figure was to stand up and sit down during the presentation. Walt also insisted that the figure's mouth be able to shape the sounds A, E, I, O, and U. Waithel and a team used small pneumatically powered tubes in the lips of the figure to achieve this realistic facial movement. They also developed a series of small actuators for the corners of the mouth and the areas around the mouth. All of this was new technology that had never been tried before. So and we know too that Bob Gurr, you know, also worked on the figure's body as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So The night before the Lincoln figure was to be shipped to the World's Fair, there was a heavy rain with thunder and lightning, and Lincoln wouldn't work. Mark Davis quipped, God doesn't want Lincoln to come back to life. (laughs) (laughs) However, Waithel and his team worked their magic and got Lincoln working before he was shipped to New York, where he was well-received by audiences. Programming the early audio animatronic figures was a laborious task. An actor would have to be strapped into a harness-like device, and the actor's movements would make the figure move. Whilst performing and programming the Carousel of Progress figures, Waithel spent four hour-long periods strapped into the harness that was fitted with sensors, which relayed his movements to the figures. He inherently knew what movements the figures should make and when. The recording tape used at the time could not be spliced, so the programming sequence for each figure had to be done in one sitting 
without any interruptions or mistakes. And there is a scene of him and Waltz describing the uh, Carousel Progress for his 1963-64 World's Fair episode on his uh, um, on his television series. And you see Waithel in the chair as Walt uh, describes yep. it. That's him. I know the exact scene that you're talking about. I, yeah. I think about it all the time because it's like, I mean, it, like strapped to the electric chair or something. Yeah, but at the looks, same time, yeah. that freedom to move around. But then you understand why animatronics sometimes have that. Like, it, they get that human feel. But at the same time, it's like, it also feels like they're limited in how they can move. And it's like, well, yeah, but you didn't see what they were wearing to, to make these movements happen. And uh, once you do, you can you know, figure it all out. Why It's just yeah. like so close, but not all the way there. Yeah, I mean, it looks like a torture device. John, <laughs> John Hench so said that Waithel loved doing it. And, and Waithel said in an interview how because, you know, this could not be spliced or anything, you had, like, if you stopped, you had to remember exactly what your previous movement movement was so that you didn't cause a jerking motion a, yeah, with like the figure. Yeah, like a jerk from the jump. Yeah, mm-hmm. I didn't think about that. But, yeah, that's, I mean, uh, yeah, that, that would definitely come into play. Wow, that gives me even more respect for what they were doing. Yeah. Now, in the late 1960s, this method was replaced by joystick controls and then later by computer consoles. Waithel made sure that no matter what the project he and his team were assigned, it all had a single point of origin, Walt himself. Walt would describe the figure's specifications, scope, and style of the movements and what they would do in a scene. Walt and his team, Walt Waithel and his team would then work to duplicate what Walt wanted. After Walt's passing, Waithel continued to work on creating new attractions, including America Sings at Disneyland and the Hall of Presidents at the Magic Kingdom. He was involved in every aspect of an attraction, from art direction to manufacturing to development of system controls and programming. He was also the art director for the Magic Kingdom after it opened and was the predecessor of what would become known as show quality standards. After supervising the field installation of the audio animatronic figures in Epcot Center's Horizons Pavilion, he went into the hospital for heart bypass surgery. Due to complications, he remained in hospital for four months. After a long period of recuperation, he was back at work in the fall of 1984. Waithel retired in 1987 to Sedona, Arizona, where many of his longtime Imagineering friends were now residing. He was named a Disney legend in 1995, and he passed away on August 25th, 2000. You can find tributes to him on Main Street Windows at both Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom. At Disneyland, his window reads, you'll cut a fine figure, Waithel Rogers, menswear, and it can be found above New Century jewelry. At the Magic Kingdom, he shares a window above the Main Street confectionery that reads, Buena Vista Magic Lantern Slides, treat your friends to our special tricks. Yale Gracie, Bud Martin, Ken O'Brien, and Waithel Rogers. Of Waithel Rogers, Marty Scalar once said, any time a problem popped up in Walt Disney World, they would call Waithel, and he always had a solution. They really loved him. They need a Waithel Rogers there today. 
There <laughs> we both, go, right? Both the parks. Yep, yep. <laughs> Walt Disney was an almost daily visitor to the model shop before it moved to the Imagineering campus in Glendale. Anyone working in that department had a much greater chance of a one-to-one interaction with him. When Walt was stressed out, he'd tell his secretary, Dolores, I'm going to take a walk on the back lot. That meant he would be visiting the model shop. He regarded it as his toy shop. He would bring VIPs to the model shop and occasionally animators with skills Walt recognized would be beneficial for projects being worked on in the shop. Walt Disney found the model shop to be integral to his plans. He liked to see things in reality. He knew from all his years in animation that any painting or drawing could fool people. Seeing a project in three dimensions would make any problems clearly visible and also to more easily see any enhancement potentials. Walt once said, a model may cost $5,000, but it's sure less expensive than $50,000 to fix the real thing. Today, many of the skill sets are divided up among specialists at Imagineering, sculptors, painters, dimensional designers, figure finishers. It is remarkable to think that the original model shop team did all of those jobs with equal genius and versatility. So I have a tremendous respect. The early Imagineers were just amazing. They could just do anything, it seems. Yeah, for (laughs) sure, for sure. And models, I feel like they are still so important to this day. I mean, the same way as, uh, you know, sculptors doing like uh, doing, you know, more human figures, busts with, with the models. There is just something else that is like it's so mesmerizing when when you look at them i mean i love the fact that at uh it um at uh the one man's dream walt disney presents at hollywood studios you know we talked about the the couple models that are already in there but i mean there are so many more we have the model of uh, dca we have the model of sleeping beauty castle that sits right below the tv that's playing the disneyland theme entrance uh from the from the uh, television show uh they have the jungle cruise platform uh i feel like they added one extra one in there at some point in time i can't think of what it is though now like i know we got the the disneyland map um from that used to be in the opera house at disneyland that finally mm-hmm. came over here but not not as a as a model in that way but uh, there there's so many little cool models in there you know they've they've dropped pieces of galaxy's edge in there from time mm-hmm. to time and like you know that was that was one of the biggest highlights of the expo where they really got in depth with with galaxy's edge that model was massive i mean it took up that entire room uh the one they did for pandora years before that was just as impressive especially mm-hmm. with black light effects it is so cool nothing you know that nothing against something like what they did for epcot that year i think that was like 2019 where it was just spaceship earth and the different lands below still a cool model but not not the same thing when they build a model for for uh, you know a very specific area that you know you'll get to live in and walk through one day 
uh, it's so, so cool to look at it and go back and look at pictures and see how it comes together. I've been doing that a lot lately as Tiana's Bayou Adventure is getting closer. Yeah, talk, about, at um, talk about something that doesn't look like the model. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, the great thing about all that, the plant life on Tiana's is that it would continue to grow, right? And just fill in. It's not all fake flowers and stuff. Mm-hmm. I, it's got to be real. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm hearing on the interwebs the big criticism of that is it doesn't look like the magnolia trees at the magic lights and all of that anymore. It, it looks like it's closer to some of the foliage that's over in the Moana water experience at Epcot. So, <laughs> yeah, you are our resident foliage expert, not me. So I'm not, I'm not going to judge as much about it. Yeah, I'm I'll sure it's going to look. It. I, at the end of the day, as long as people get to drop down that hill, I don't think they care what the what the foliage quite looks like. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, and a lot of those models you'll see at the D23 Expo and at Disneyland. You know, uh, at our Opera House. In the lobby, where Great Moments with Mr. Lincoln is, will frequently they, they they frequently have displays mm-hmm. that might be they'll have the models and maquettes maybe from a film, or that will be models from uh you know it'll be we'll be doing they'll do a little history res- retrospective maybe on an attraction or part of the park, and then they'll they'll bring out from the archives the models associated with that that still exists so we get to see sort of a you know different uh, revolving exhibitions with models and concept art and that's really nice it's a shame they closed down the blue sky cellar at california adventure you know where it was going to be future attractions and apparently that's being repurposed reimagined for something else so but that was exciting that we were going to, because that was something when I was a boy, they had that on Main Street in Town Square. And you could see, okay, what was coming. And that was there for a long time. And so I was excited when they said, okay, we're bringing, John, I think it was John Lasseter's idea. So maybe that's why it's being closed down. They were, um, they were bringing, they were going to bring it back over at California Adventure, and then that died out. So, yeah, Well, um, hopefully Disney can get back on the bandwagon of showing it off more and more, because I, I think Universal's going to do it for their massive model of Epic Universe that was kind of in their, their big reveal video. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think that's going to be on display at some point in time for, for people to see, or at least pieces. And uh, there's, there's nothing like a good model. There, there really isn't. I agree. I agree. It gets you excited and it creates a lot of buzz. Yeah. I mean, when they have a model, think of, especially with the days of social media, think of how many people take a photo of that model and then post it mm-hmm. and talk about how excited they're going to be when this opens, yep. when this is built and open. Yeah, I mean, that. Disney can't pay for that kind of stuff. They pay yeah, for the exactly. model, it, but, it, you know. It's just when you start really, really taking them in, you start to notice the small details and mm-hmm. you you start to see that stuff. That was like, that's what led me down back when they revealed the, the Tiana's Bayou Adventure one to us. And I was looking at the, the model of it standing there with Imagineering and saw like all the little lights going on inside at the top of the hill and how it was set up. And that's 
what prompted me to ask like so it's not going to be like a scary moment like everyone expects and no it's going to be a celebration it's going to be the party as you're getting it's ready like to get people excited yeah and it's like <laughs> so that was one of those things i mean everyone would have still kept up that that well that should be facilia getting everyone scared before throwing you over and it's like if you looked at the 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 model close enough, you would have saw that that clearly wasn't what they had planned with it and, and opened up that door. So I love, I love looking at these models and just being like, Mm -hmm. what, what secrets are they hiding within? Because they absolutely are doing that too. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how that turns out. That's one of my favorite films and I made a film. So I'm hoping the model will do it justice. Um, The attraction will do it justice. Yeah. If not, we'll just ride the model. (laughs) <laughs> that's right the, with the little camera lens that don Iwerks <laughs> okay. created yep okay well now it's time for this week in disney history okay craig i think it is your turn it to is. start yeah i remembered it is my turn to start, and um, I'm not quite going with models this week, but <laughs> I am going with a, another uh, a different type of artistry that I feel like uh, was was just perfected with uh, Walt Disney uh, motion pictures. And uh, unfortunately, it's with sad news. But on February 12th of 2007, uh, that's when Peter Ellenshaw passed away, and. Uh, of course, it, Peter Ellenshaw just was the Matt artist, uh, magnificent mm-hmm. Matt artist specialist out there and literally did some of the best ones you will ever see in any movies, in, including for Disney, Mary Poppins and, um, and Darby O'Gill and 20,000 Leagues. And I, I mean, the list literally just goes on and on and Davy Crockett and old yeller and the love bug like just all all the way through and it's unfortunately it ended up becoming a a, a, a specific type of art that uh, just wasn't really as much needed especially once you uh once you get to the point in time where you have uh you know once you have computer graphics placed in you don't necessarily need the matte art the matte painting that you know might have like that that castle sitting all the way up on the hill that that looked like it was there but really it's on a plate of glass and then the camera you know you line it all up perfectly and it looks like that it's there but it's not once once you get in the world of cgi you don't necessarily need that as much and uh it's it's it was a lost art you know he passed it on to to his son who also uh, worked on worked on some movies uh with with the same skills but uh just just made such a huge huge impact with uh with, with disney because of it brought such a believability to so many movies with with that skill and uh it's always always important to remember him and uh, that's just one small part of his his legacy with disney you know it's he he has plenty more stories involved with him i i agree i am always so amazed when you see one of those behind the scenes of like making of treasure Island or Darby mm-hmm. O'Gill. And like, uh, there's a couple of things like what the, the village, the Darby O'Gill village, you see in like some of the opening credits and all that. When you realize how little of that village actually existed. Yep. They had like some of the walls and doorways 
and then the rest was Ellen Shaw's magic. And yeah. then, and then the castle, the, the ruins of the castle on the hill, that was all Ellen Shaw or the, the, uh, in Treasure Island, the dock scene with the village and then all the ships and port and all that stuff. Most all of that was a map painting with yep. just a very little center part where they had like a real ship. You know, exactly. It, it it is astonishing, and it doesn't take away the magic of the film when you know that you it in in for me, it it increases it because you're thinking what skill, what artistry to create this, and it's seamless. So when you think of when those films were made, it is seamless completely. And he went on to to work on more modern films, even Tron and stuff. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's. You know, yeah, he was impressive. We have two Ellen Shaw pieces in our home. One is in my it, the recording room, my study, right here. Oh, really? Where, yeah, yeah. So, and it's autographed and embellished by him because he. It's um, they're, they're both of Cinderella Castle, and oh, wow. and one and then on both of them he drew. Um, he actually drew in the mat. He drew Cinderella's coach and, ca- and her carriage with the horses and all that. Oh, and so, how wonderful! I know, I know. There, there was, it was. We always joked that in, I think in every room in the house there's a castle. Yes, <laughs> we have a picture of a castle. Yeah, somewhere, as so. you're supposed to do. <laughs> yes, yes. Who, who doesn't? Yeah. But yeah, so but we have a couple of Ellen Shaw pieces that. I just love well, another one is when you walk into our house, there's a huge one that you see when you first walk in. Very uh, neat. Anyway. So one of the few things I own that is pro- that actually is worth something <laughs> of my vast Disney collection. So, all right. So that's a good one. Good one for just to remember Pete Allen Shaw. Mine, I, I am remembering someone else, too, that does have a connection to what we're talking about today. That's February 11th, 1918. Imagineer, sculptor, and Disney legend Blaine Gibson is born in Rocky Ford, Colorado. And, of course, we talked about him many times. He created hundreds of sculptures that um, from which the audio animatronic figures and bronzes were produced for like the 1964-65 World's Fair, for Disney theme parks all around the world, including great moments with Mr. Lincoln. He created the head of Mr. Lincoln from the life mask of the president. Of course, the pirates from Pirates of the Caribbean, the ghosts and ghoulies in the Haunted Mansion, uh, the Enchanted Tiki Room, and of course, the president's for the Hall of Presidents. It's only been the last really couple of presidents that he was not, that he didn't um, personally sculpt. And then the partner statue that is uh, in a, in the hub of, the, you know, of many of the castle parks and at the Walt Disney Studio in um, Burbank. I have a model of the partner statue that he autographed for me when he was at the Walt Disney uh, Family wow. Museum. Yeah, so that's that's a treasure, and that's also here in my study. So, so next, cool, yeah. And but just a remarkable, remarkable man. And and there's a funny story we've talked about where, as sort of a side little project, he did a bust of um, of Walt's head 
because he thought it'd be just a nice little gift. Walt would like it. And and then he presented it to Walt and Walt and Walt said, why in the hell would I want that? I'm not dead. And Blaine was so taken aback. He was horrified that he thought he had offended Walt. So he, he sort of kept it in his garage for years and years and years. And after Walt had passed and all that, he gave it to Diane Disney Miller. And now it is one of the first things you see when you walk into the Walt Disney Family Museum. And, and I use it, I pose sometimes, I, I, I pose with it in my Connecting with Walt shirt that um, me next to it that I've used a few times on social media. And um, anyway, so very, very, very talented man. Yeah. So anyway, so, uh, so it's just, it's just fun to see, um, you know, just that the handiwork of all of these people that we've talked about today, including Peter Ellenshaw, just is still alive and exists so that we don't forget them. You know, and I think that's so important. And Mm -hmm. that's sort of why this show exists. So we don't forget them, but that we can go into the parks now. And I think appreciate those attractions so much more because we know the talent that uh, went into the creation of them. We know the people a little more that went into creating those attractions. So anyway, so. So we were talking before the show. We usually talk about weather at the beginning of the show, and I thought I'm not going to do that. But I know what it's like to be in a hurricane. <laughs> we were talking before <laughs> California. We I'm in Northern California, um, up near the Sierra foothills, and oh my gosh, we were battered over the weekend with hurricane force winds, and it just was relentless. And then the rain, intense rain. My I still have standing water in my back garden and because the ground is just saturated at this point. It can't absorb anymore. Yeah. And, and when you would step on it, and I don't want to step on it because it's going to compress the soil, but it feels like just spongy water. Mm. But it was shocking. <laughs> I mean, the house is shaking. It sounded like a locomotive was running through the backyard. Um at one point, I felt like I was Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz trying to get into the storm um, cellar because the on my greenhouse, the doors came unlocked. They were blown open and banging around. So I had to get out there in this wind, walking through water because the whole area around the greenhouse was underwater. And then <laughs> try to secure the doors. And I put some heavy pots against them. It was wild. And it was the, just all day Sunday, you know, just, uh, you know, morning to night. It was crazy. I'd never, we've had high winds before, but never anything like this. So. Yeah, it's, I mean, the the scary part with it, too, is, you know, it, you always worry about tornadoes and stuff once the wind starts getting high and the temperature's getting crazy. So, I'm happy you didn't have to deal with, with any of that. But, yeah, California, I know y'all are just ready for <laughs> some some dry weather and get back to get back to normal yeah. the day we're recording is like our drying out day up here in northern california it's still dank and you know dreary and cloudy yeah it's not supposed to rain till tomorrow 
So it gives us a bit of a break. I have had Christmas decorations in the back of my van for in by Saturday, it'll be a month because it hasn't stopped raining, raining long enough for me to get to the storage unit. Cause they're in cardboard boxes to get to the storage unit to put them in there. Cause I don't want the cardboard boxes to get wet. Gotcha. <laughs> so anyway, but so it's been crazy, just crazy. So, um, we we mentioned at the beginning of the show that, you know, we're recording in the mornings now. And that is because I, I've really not talked about my day job very much. And we've, we've talked about it. But this is my first week of retirement from hey. my day job. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. It has been a hassle. So, because Social Security did not, even though I applied over two months ago, Social Security did not process my application for my payments and for Medicare B. So, I, after many phone calls, where you like wait an hour and a half, you know? So, I was working like on the script for the show and all this stuff as I'm listening to their music and all that, but got it all straightened out yesterday afternoon. Oh, and so nice. then I could apply for the medical coverage I wanted. It'll start in a few weeks. And now I'm dealing with the proper paperwork for my pension plan, which they keep sending me and it's the wrong thing. And then they said, well, you never told us your wife died. And I said, well, everybody knew. <laughs> they said, well, you have to send us a death certificate in order for us yeah. to process it properly. I said, well, that would have been nice somebody had told me five phone calls ago yeah, right, and, and all of that. But I think that's going to be straightened out. And um, so then I should be good. And then, good. and then, and then that, that is it. But uh, so then we'll see, then I'll start to fall into a more of a normal routine and see what goes on and all that. But um, now, Seeing Red is now coming back into the theaters, the Pixar film. Are you going? Did you ever go back and see Soul in a theater? I have not had time, so mm-hmm. I'm hoping I'll have time for Turning Red too. But Turning Red, know. thank you. I think I Seeing Red I is what I saw yeah. this week as <laughs> I dealt with the government. Yeah, I I do not know if I will have time. I'm hoping I will, but yeah, I, I might end up missing out on all these Pixar re-releases, and then I'm I'm back to being part of the problem. <laughs> well, I'm I'm torn because it's now it is they our Regal Theater that I like to go to because they have the best popcorn. Yeah. Um, that's <laughs> that's my standard. <laughs> Just feed me the best food, and I'll go. Um, they 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 did not sh- show Soul. But they they're showing turning red, which I think is interesting. And but I thought, okay, I'll go to maybe a movie. I could go to movies now, like in the morning. <laughs> I'm so excited yeah. on a weekday, and if I have the time. But I I I'm I'm debating. Do I want to see Turning Red, or have you seen Wonka? I still haven't seen that either. But I, I'm not as so. I don't love any iteration of uh, of Willy Wonka or Charlie and the mm-hmm. Chocolate Factory. It's not, it, it's just something that it's never been my thing. So, um, yeah, I, I wasn't rushing to get out to this one. I'll, I'll watch it eventually, but mm-hmm. yeah, I, I didn't see it. Yeah, I'll decide. I'm not a huge fan of the Gene Wilder version. I don't know. And it's not that I don't like it. It's just that it didn't click with me. 
I don't know why. I find some of the filming and effects and all that interesting. But I think like he was sort of creepy. (laughs) Well, I think the character is just that's the way it is. And I read the book eons ago. I think I read it to my children and they were little. And, uh, and, but, um, I also think it was weird that all the grandparents sleep in the same bed. That just bothered me. <laughs> yeah. First there are a few things that bother me in it, but I think the acting's superb. I, the little boy that plays Charlie is terrific. And I think he went on to be a veterinarian, but so I thought, I don't know what I want to see. I didn't like turning red, but I thought, well, maybe I'll like it a second time. I don't know. So I'm trying to figure it out. But then I feel like I want to support these films in the hopes that, you know, it'll and keep Pixar like open. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's necessarily going to make uh, a big, a big push. I think just ultimately it's one of those things now that animators that felt betrayed, you know, it's, the, and anyone who worked on the movie, not just the animation teams, but now you have a chance to go and see your feature on the big screen. So it's something that should have happened and not like at a $5 re-release, you know, that Disney and other studios do sometimes. I, I think it was the right thing, whether or not, yeah, it, it makes them a lot of money. I, I, I think that's all just secondary. It's, it's, it's more about writing what should have happened to begin with and start setting the standard that Pixar movies are theatrical movies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's uh, it's I I just think in this day and age anymore, if it's if it can be presented theatrically and it doesn't cost Disney a lot extra, I think that's going to be the route they're going uh, post all of this. I mean, it's uh, a lot of that is just signifying what happened uh, this this week with Moana 2 popping out of nowhere. <laughs> it was a TV series that then they're just like, oh, we'll make it a movie. So uh, if if it's, you know, if it's with a studio and it's good enough to be a movie and if it has proven back back successes with it, too, then make it theatrical. And I I think Pixar moving forward isn't isn't going to mess around with that again. It's they're too important to to Disney movies overall. I agree with you. I think they are, they should have their theatrical run. I also think they need to widen the window. We've said this before. I think they need to widen the window of when it hits Disney Plus. Because yeah. the people know I have to wait six months before it's on Disney Plus, they might want to go. They might want to see it in the theater. Yeah, you know, if they know That's it's going to be on Disney Plus in six weeks or two months or something, uh, I can wait two months. You know. Yep. So, yep. but uh, okay. So, Monitor, I saw the Diz posted something about it. I with all what I just talked about, I was dealing with this week. I didn't read the the posting yet. I thought Moana was going to be a live action film. So they're making a sequel to the animated film. Are they still making a live action film too? Yes. Moana? Oh, yeah. well that's just stupid. <laughs> Drop the live action film and make the animated sequel. Uh, I, I, I don't think that's going to happen now, especially with the, with the fact that, you know, Moana was the the most streamed movie just in general, not not uh, not just Disney. I mean, yeah, with Disney, but in general, Moana more streams than anything else, which is just like 
crazy. So, um, I, I, you know, I, I don't think we're getting let up with Moana here. So, yeah, the movie, the movie now animated movie sequel is coming because it was supposed to be a TV series and they were able to uh, turn it into a feature. So I'm hoping the quality is there because they already said that Lin-Manuel is not involved in music for it. And that's part of a big reason why the first one is Mm -hmm. so, so good. Uh, So we'll have to see about that. But then, yeah, the live action is still on track for 2025. So uh, it would be, yeah, the sequel coming in November of 2024 and then sometime in 2025 getting the live action. And, you know, that seems like a tentpole film around uh, summer. You know, sometimes they've released these uh, the live action movies in like March, or, you know, even even May and in the summer. But how insane would it be if there's two Moanas that that come out within months of each other? I mean, within six months yeah. of each other. There's, yeah, I'm worried possibly happen. Screw it all up because I like Moana, and you're right. I think one of the many things Wish taught us was if you don't have the good music where people want to hear those songs over and over again and they're humming them when they leave the theater, it's not going to do well. And Moana had all that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, if they don't have memorable songs where you're snapping your fingers and you leave the theater humming that thinking, I want to download the soundtrack and everything, then yeah, they're going to mess it up. Yeah. And uh, I, 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 hope that it all works out it's not going to change how i feel about moana uh that will even if they destroy it with a awful sequel or a live action it's not going to change that the first movie is just one of the easily the the most beautiful of Mm -hmm. of our modern disney movies right now that it's a and it's a great story a great story too they did a good job with that But of course, if, if Moana, the sequels bomb, there's always Pirates of the Caribbean 6 to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> we, have a, we have a lot of uh, movies to look forward to with numbers at the end of it. So I, yes. that's not going to let up anytime soon. Uh, so, well, I use several resources for this episode. Some couple books and magazines I used. Walt Disney's Imagineering Legends and the Genesis of the Disney Theme Park by Jeff Curdy. And e-ticket magazine number 44, Walt Disney's Model Shop. Some websites and articles. Uh, we wouldn't have Disneyland without these five Imagineers by Molly McCormick for allears.net. The Early Days of Audio Animatronics by Keith Gluck for the Walt Disney Family Museum. A Feathered Family Creating the Birds of Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room by Sophie Joe for the Walt Disney Family Museum. Walt Disney legend Fred Jerger, um, d23.com. The Fred Jerger obituary for uh, that was written by the LA Times. It's in their archives. The Fred Jerger obituary by the Washington Post, although that could be behind a paywall. I think I was able to access it because it was one of my free articles I got for the mm-hmm. month. Oh, here's the article I was talking about earlier. Former Lakeview Terrace home of early Imagineer Fred Jerger asks $2.7 million. That's in a Los Angeles daily news. Definitely check that one out. Oh, I will. (laughs) So Disney's master of illusion, Fred Jerger, university of Houston, the Cullen college of engineering is an article 
they did. Uh, check out the Harriet Burns official website. Um, it was, uh, you know, Walt Disney's first lady of Imagineering at, at ImagineerHarriet.com. And the finishing touch of Harriet Burns, Walt's Folly, the history, ideas, and people who built Disneyland. Disney legend Wethel Rogers, um, the, his article at d23.com as well. So Craig will include links to these resources in our episode description. Mm-hmm. So Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? Uh, as always, you can find me on the different shows I'm on in the Disunplug network. Disunplugged, geez. Diz Unlimited Networked. I was wondering um, how soon someone would <laughs> trip over I, that. Cut myself there. Uh, you can email me, Craig at DisneyInfo.com, and you can follow me on social media at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, until next time, you connect with me by sending me messages at Michael Bowling at DisneyInfo.com. Ex- um, on Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, Bowling dash connecting with Walt. Instagram, Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.